We interrupt this program. This is a national emergency. Important instructions will follow. The following message is transmitted at the request of the United States government. This is not a test. All broadcast and cable systems shall transmit this emergency action notification message. It's your boy back again for another podcast. And as you can tell by the intro, we're not doing the everyday. Here's the fun fact. Here's the importance of this day in history. None of that stuff. This is a special investigative report, the one that we always put out, I'd say, once a week. It's usually on a Sunday. It's always a topic that is a little bit controversial, controversial or a little bit underreported or less known than most topics. So with that three-minute intro that's completely overproduced, we're going to get into a topic that when I was home over the uh, 4th of July break from work, I don't know why, but it I watched a movie that led me to a documentary, which led me to TikTok, which led me to YouTube, which led me to basically searching the entire internet on the events after 9-11 and the subsequent torture program the CIA decided to run the mass surveillance that was instituted after 9-11 and the trampling of civil liberties in this country that in any other period without 9-11 happening would have never happened. But since 9-11 happened, we decided to do some crazy shit that we're not proud of, that we've owned up to for the most part, but we'll never know if we're still doing it or not because words like classified and national security and in the spirit of defense, stuff like that gets thrown around now and redacted and all this stuff. So 
We may never know if they're still doing it, but there have been some crazy things that we've done to enhance our security, the TSA, the NSA, these three-letter agencies that didn't really exist before 9-11 exist now. And I went down the rabbit hole and I'm like, this is crazy how if you add up all these things over time, you're like, this is kind of wild how we went from one, pretty much one country to a completely different looking country after the fact. So we're going to dive into it. Um, We're going to have some, I think about six topics. We're going to cover it a little bit in depth because I don't want to skip over anything or leave anything glossed over as if it's not important. So I did a little research on this for the last like three or four days. If I miss anything, please call it out. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. It's very nuanced and there's a lot of ins and outs going on. So if I miss something, don't think I'm just covering it up or, you know, I'm a shill, shit like that. So with that being said, we're going to get into it and we're going to cover the topic of torture and mass surveillance that the U.S. government decided to use in the coming months and years after 9-11. So like I said in the intro, uh, after 9-11, we're not going to get into 9-11. If you don't know what 9-11 is at this point, then you're on your own. But as we know, 9-11 terrorist attack, the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, Flight 93, all these things. And if you believe the official story, we were blindsided by these terrorists. And we're going to operate under the assumption that the official story is the true story. However you want to go on that side of the coin, we could save that for a whole other time. But after 9-11, Americans... The government were horrified, terrified, scared that this can happen again, asking questions like how did this happen in the first place and how do we stop the next one from happening? So with that being said, the whole mantra and the whole beat to the drum, the whole drum beat, I don't know why I said it like that. The whole drum beat was we need to protect, we need to secure, we need to monitor, we need to watch everything going on at all times. We need to be everywhere. We need to find out who did this, how they got away with it, where they are, how to get them. And it wasn't like there was one country that attacked us. It was Muslim extremists. I wouldn't say Muslim extremists in general. Muslim extremists in this case, though, decided to attack us. And it's not just one country. You know, there's several cells around the world. So how do you fight something like that, right? You come up with the phrase war on terror. And again, we're not going to get into 9-11 and the wars and stuff, but we're going to get into the programs after that that decided to spawn out of being scared and being worried. And rightfully so. No one wants to be at work one day and get blown up by a bomb. So the first step after 9-11 in what we did was we made this act, this law called the USA Patriot Act. And I'm sure anyone that's over the age of anyone who was about in fifth fifth grade during 9-11 has definitely heard of this phrase, has definitely heard of this act before. The USA Patriot Act, right? It sounds very unifying. It sounds very patriotic. It has the word patriot in it. And you're like, if, if I'm supporting the war on terror, I'm going to support my country. The USA Patriot Act is something I can get behind. It sounds cool. It sounds awesome. However, it's an acronym. And what it stands for is Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism act of 2001. So again, kind of vague. You don't really know what's going on there, but it's a seminal law passed after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The act expanded the authority of law
law enforcement and intelligence agencies to surveil and investigate suspected terrorists. Although the act aimed to safeguard national security, it generated ongoing debate about the balance between security and civil liberties. So in response to the 9-11 attacks, the Bush administration proposed a sweeping new law to enhance the powers of the U.S. government in preventing terrorist attacks. The act was introduced to Congress on October 23rd, 2001, about a month and a half after 9-11, and it passed with overwhelming support in both the House and the Senate in late October. President George W. Bush signed the bill into law on October 26, 2001, and the swift passage reflected the fear and urgency in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Now, I'm not going to go sit here and read the entire bill, because who the hell wants to listen to that? So we got some key topics we got out of this. These are the main ones that you want to pay attention to, and that have been debated back and forth on if they're legal, if it's moral, if it goes against the American way, all this stuff. So Title II, Surveillance surveillance Procedures, this section dramatically expanded the government's authority to monitor communications, both domestic and international, and access personal records. Notably, it includes the roving wiretap provision, which allows law enforcement to monitor any communication method of a specific person and the library records provision, permitting the FBI to access tangible things, including books, records, papers, documents, and other items in terrorism investigations. So basically, all they had to do was just stamp on you, you're a suspected terrorist, and now we can invade your entire privacy, which is against the Constitution. So Title II, Surveillance, Title III was the anti-money laundering. So this section aimed to prevent terrorists from moving money through the U.S. institutions by imposing more regulations on banking and financial, financial transactions. You see this when you open a new bank account or get a new credit card, pretty much any kind of money you do with a U.S. bank, it says for the Patriot Act reasons, you have to sign this form that monitors money, yada, yada, yada. No one really reads it because it's fine print. But basically what it's saying is that it can monitor any transaction you make and use that against you if they suspect you're a terrorist. Title V, removing obstacles to investigating terrorism. This section granted the government the power to issue national security letters to gather information about U.S. residents without a warrant or probable cause. And stomping on the Constitution a little bit. And then Title VIII, strengthening the criminal laws against terrorism. This section established new criminal offenses related to terrorism and made many changes to existing laws to make it easier to pursue and prosecute individuals suspected of terrorism. So what does this all mean, right? You know, I just named off what, four different titles that are in there, you know, and you're sitting there probably wondering why the hell do these matter, right? So what impact does this have on civil civil liberties? Before the act, many of the surveillance activities it authorized would have been seen as invasions of privacy and potential Fourth Amendment violations. The act lowered the standard for initiating surveillance and investigations shifting from probable cause of crime to a mere assertion that the investigation is relevant to a terrorist investigation. Like I said, they just slapped the old terrorism sticker on you and they could start just breaking laws. This shift led to a significant expansion of government surveillance capabilities and corresponding reduction in individual privacy rights. While the act's purpose was to protect national security, critics argue it effectively legalized a range of potential abuses of civil civil liberties. There are certain concerns about racial and religious profiling, intrusive surveillance, and unwarranted interference in individuals' private lives. The controversial Section 215, often referred to as library records provision, 
allowed the government to obtain any tangible things relevant to terrorism investigations, even if there was no proof that the subject of the search was guilty. This means the government could spy on U.S. citizens and residents without needing to demonstrate to a court that the person is acting as an agent of a foreign power. The Patriot Act has been associated with the bulk collection of Americans' phone records by the NSA, revealed by Edward Snowden, who we're going to cover later, in 2013. However, U.S. federal appear appeals court in 2015 said that the bulk collection of americans phone records was illegal and this activity was never authorized by congress so where do we stand today with the usa patriot act right it's it's been 22 years since 9 11 and this bill obviously crosses a whole bunch of different lines so where do we stand today with it so the key provisions of the patriot act were set to expire over time which is called the sunset clause however these have been repeatedly reauthorized by Congress, often with modifications. Some provisions like the bulk collection of phone records have been ended. In 2015, the USA Freedom Act was passed, effectively replacing the expiring parts of the Patriot Act. The Freedom Act ended bulk collection of phone metadata by the NSA, instead requiring a specific targeted warrant for for this data. It also made some other changes intended to increase transparency and introduce more oversight. However, much of the original Patriot Act remains in effect. In conclusion now, the USA Patriot Act represents a profound shift in American law and policy, marking a significant increase in the government's surveillance powers in the name of national security. While it was introduced as a necessary measure in the face of grave terrorist threats, its impacts on civil liberties have been heavily critiqued. The debate over the Patriot Act touches on fundamental questions of the balance between national security and individual freedom, a topic of enduring relevance in the post-9-11 era. So that's just the first part. We got about four more parts. If you bear with me, we're going to get through it. Like I said in the beginning, this is going to be a long one. So stick with it. We're going to tie it all together at the end. So with this mass surveillance going on of all these, of every American citizen after 9-11, and all they have to do is slap a terrorism sticker on you and say, here's what, he's a terrorist. We think he's a terrorist. We have an indication he might be a terrorist. We're going to capture him and we're going to hold on to him in the name of terror or in the name of national security, deeming him a terrorist. So where do we go from there, right? So let's just say you're a terrorist or suspected terrorist. It could be because we've blown up Americans thinking that they're terrorists. They get you and they lock you in a room, right? And what changed after 9-11 was the domestic and international policies on how we handled suspected terrorists. A crucial and controversial part of this new approach was the use of enhanced interrogation techniques, or EITs, by the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. The techniques were designed to extract information from key terrorist suspects to prevent further attacks on American soil. You might might have heard about EITs, but here we go. We're going to get into them. So EITs were developed by two contracted psychologists, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen who had previously worked for the U.S. Air Force's Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, or SEER, program. Their work in this program, which was initially designed to help U.S. military personnel withstand and resist interrogation methods used by potential enemies, served as a foundation for these enhanced techniques. On August 1st, 2002, the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice issued two memos known as the Torture Memos, written by J. Bybee and John Yu. These memos asserted that for an act to be considered torture, it must inflict pain comparable to organ failure, impairment of bodily function, or even death. They also argue that the U.S. laws and treaties banning torture might not apply to al-Qaeda and Taliban detainees because of their state, because of their status as non-state actors in an international armed conflict. 
Again, we're not fighting one country, we're fighting an idea, and we're fighting people. So again, you can be from any country and be considered a terrorist, and then boom, you're starting to get this enhanced interrogation technique put on you. But what are these techniques, right? What are they? What's an enhanced interrogation technique? If you've seen Law & Order or any kind of law show, they lock you in a room, they handcuff you to the desk, and they ask you questions over and over again, good cop, bad cop, shit like that going on. Enhanced techniques are a little different, a little more physical, a little more brutal, as they say. And the first one, probably the most famous one, is called waterboarding. This method simulates the sensation of drowning. The detainee is bound to be in an inclined bench with his feet raised and head slightly below the feet. So imagine you're laying on your back, your heels are raised up, and all the blood basically is rushing to your head. That's the direction you're angled at. A cloth is then placed over your face, and cold water is poured onto it from a height, inducing the feeling of terror and choking. So you're choking on this wet rag, and you're you're sucking in water, so it makes your brain trigger the I'm drowning effect because there's water going into your lungs and you can't breathe, so it's making you think you're drowning. The second technique is called walling. This is where the interrogator pulls the detainee towards him and then quickly slams him against a flexible false wall, creating a loud noise and causing the shock and disorientation. It's pretty much you're just shoving someone against the wall. I don't know why they call it like this whole scientific title, but this is what they proposed to the CIA and said it's called walling. And at no point did someone just say, hey, isn't that just slamming someone against the wall? And they're like, no, it's called walling. You know, it's, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, but hey. And then the third one was stress positions. Now this one definitely sucks. The detainee is forced to stand, stand, sit, or kneel in an uncomfortable and strenuous position for extended periods of time. The pictures I've seen, and there's pictures all over the internet of this shit, is when they, they tie your feet together and then they tie your wrists together and then they attach your feet to your wrists while you're standing up. So now you're just bent forward and you can't stand up straight. And they leave you like that for an indefinite amount of time. Could be days, could be however long they feel necessary until you start giving up information that they're trying to get. I would give up in a minute because I'd get a cramp and that would be it. Number four, cramped confinement. This is when the detainee is confined in a small dark box for hours at a time. Sometimes insects were often placed in the boxes to exploit the prisoner's phobias. So they find out you're scared of bugs, scared of snakes. They throw a snake in there with you into a small box and it's just you and the bugs for a while. And again, you're cramped and it's miserable. Again, awful shit. Number five, sleep deprivation. Detainees were kept awake for 180 hours, often standing or in stress positions, causing hallucinations, paranoia, and impaired cognitive functions. Number six, involuntary rectal feeding and rehydration. This often involved forceful insertion of food or water into the detainee's rectum purportedly to control the prisoner's diet, but also to degrade and humiliate. So it wasn't just, I want you to think of all these things again, right? There's six things that they said that they did. And I'm sure that there's different ways each cell did it or different ways each uh, prisoner or detainee was used in these tactics. So imagine you get waterboarded for an hour, hour and 20 minutes. You have that feeling of drowning. Then they take you up and they slam you against the wall a few times and they're still yelling at you to give up information that you may or may not have. All the while, there's music blasting. So, And then they throw you in a stress position. Are we going to give you a break? They put you in a stress position or confine you to a box and they dump a bag of beetles and shit all over you. And this whole time you've been awake for the last 10, 15 days with music blasting. You've been in these weird positions. You just got your head slammed against the wall and you got this feeling of drowning. And then they decide to stick a tube up your ass and shoot water up there as a way to 
as a way to degrade you, but they're telling you the whole time it's so you can eat and they're feeding you. That's torture. And no matter how how many, that's torture. I don't give a shit if you're like, oh, they deserved it. Nope. We'll get into the end. We'll tie this all in at the end later, but this is six different things of torture. It's just worded different. And if you do any one of these things on your own, you're going to be like, this sucks. I'm giving up whatever information they have. So were these actually effective, right? Were, did we do this and we stopped all these terrorism, terrorist strikes? And did we prevent the, ne- the next 9-11 from happening? Well, the effectiveness of these techniques have been widely disputed on if they worked or not. The CIA claims that EITs led to significant and unique intelligence that could not have been obtained otherwise, including information that reportedly led to the killing of Osama bin Laden. However, many others dispute this, including the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which concluded in its 2014 report, often called the Torture Report, which we're going to cover later, that the use of EITs was not an effective means of acquiring intelligence. The report found that the CIA's claims of their effectiveness were inaccurate and often overstated. The information obtained was frequently unreliable and often already available from other sources, and the program was poorly managed and lacked accountability. So speaking of accountability, was anyone accountable for this, right? No senior government official has been prosecuted or held legally responsible for the authorization or oversight of these programs. The Obama administration taking office in 2009 chose not to pursue prosecutions against those who carried out what was seen by many as torture, citing a desire to look forward and not backward. Critics argue that this lack of accountability has set a dangerous precedent. The two psychologists who developed the program, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, faced a civil lawsuit brought by the ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union, on behalf of three former detainees. The case was settled in August of 2017 for an undisclosed amount and no admission of guilt. Overall, the use of EITs by the CIA has had a far-reaching impl- has had far-reaching implications, not only for detainees who directly suffered these techniques, but also for America's reputation. It raised serious questions about the balance between national security and hum- human rights, the ethical behavior of nations during wartime, and the accountability of those who authorize and conduct actions that cross legal and moral boundaries. So, like I said, if you went through any one of those things by itself. That's torture. Just one of those things. Now, imagine you're doing all six of those things at once. You're awake. You're getting something shoved up your ass. Music's blasting. You're in a weird position. There's, they're throwing bugs on you. They're making you feel like you're drowning. And then they slam you against the wall a few times. And it's it's going to get into the report later. But it it is ineffective because at that point, if you're in that much pain and that much despair, you're going to say anything to get out of the pain. So you're going to make things up. You're going to tell them stuff they already know because you're already cut off from the world. So you have no idea really at this point what's going on in the world. And you could have told them an operation that happened already or got foiled already by another source. And then you're like, you're lying. And then you go through the whole process of waterboarding, staying awake because they think you're lying and they think you know more. So it's just an ineffective tactic. But one um, one specific case of abuse and torture in these situations is probably the most famous out of all of them. Uh, and it's the most politicized, not politicized, but um, recognized because there were pictures involved and whistleblowers and all this stuff. And it's about Abu Ghraib. So Abu Ghraib, if you've never heard it before, was a U.S. military prison in Iraq. 
infamous for the severe human rights abuses and torture carried out by military personnel against detainees during the Iraq War. The abuses came to public attention in 2004 through leaked photographs and testimonies causing international outcry and significantly damaging the reputation of the United States and its military. So, the events at Abu Ghraib should be viewed in the broader context of the War on Terror. So the war on terror, we invaded Afghanistan, right? A few years later, we invade Iraq for having WMDs, which we never found. The U.S. led an international coalition to overthrow the regime of Saddam Hussein based on the belief that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction, which again, were never found. The conflict resulted in the breakdown of law and order and a rise in insurgent activities. As part of the war effort, the U.S. established various detention, various detention facilities to hold and interrogate suspected terrorists and insurgents. One of these was the Abu Ghraib prison a large jail complex located west of Baghdad, which had previously been used by Saddam Hussein's government for imprisonment, torture, and execution of political dissents. Dissidents. Dissidents. Yeah. The abuses of Abu Ghraib took place from late 2003 to early 2004. The the facility held both criminals and alleged security detainees, many of whom were grouped together in crowded, unsanitary conditions. Many were detained not because of crimes they had committed, but because they were caught up in military sweeps, were at the wrong place at the wrong time, or were falsely accused by others. While there, detainees were subjected to brutal treatment and psychological torture. This included physical and sexual abuse, torture, rape, sodomy, and murder. Photographs taken by the soldiers themselves depict scenes of abuse, including naked prisoners stacked in a pyramid, prisoners being intimidated with dogs, kept hooded and wired up as if for electrocution and suffering various physical abuses. Although some elements of the abuse at Abu Ghraib resembled the EITs mentioned earlier, such as stress positions, sleep deprivation, and the use of dogs, what took place went far beyond any approved interrogation techniques. The soldiers involved seemed to act with free reign, and their actions were more in line with sadistic abuse and humiliation rather than any other systematic interrogation strategy. The abuse was first exposed to the wider world when specialist Joseph Darby, a U.S. Army reservist stationed at Abu Ghraib, discovered a set of disturbing photographs on a CD left unattended. He reported this to to his superiors in 2004, which prompted an internal U.S. Army investigation. In April of 2004, CBS and The New Yorker published some of the photographs bringing the scandal to international public's attention. The shocking images caused widespread condemnation both domestically and internationally. In response, the U.S. Department of Defense removed 17 soldiers and officers from duty, and 11 soldiers were charged with dereliction of duty, maltreatment, and aggravated assault and battery. So we go back to the accountability thing again, right? Who's accountable for all this stuff? Of the 11 soldiers charged, seven were convicted in courts martial, and two, including the reputed ringleader, Staff Sergeant Ivan Frederick and Specialist Charles Gray, were sentenced to 10 years in prison. Private first class Lindy England, pictured in several of the infamous photographs, was sentenced to three years in prison. The military's investigations blamed the incidents on lack of discipline and supervision and stressed that the actions were rogue acts by low-ranking soldiers. However, critics argue that this was a form of torture from the top, pointing out that the leadership, the chain of command, the policies of the administration, and the environment that encouraged such behavior were never adequately addressed. In subsequent years, several high-ranking officers were reprimanded, but none served jail time. Critics, including human rights organizations and international legal experts, argue that the prosecutions did not go far enough 
as they failed to hold higher-ups in the military and political establishment accountable, creating a climate where such abuses could take place. Overall, the events at Abu Ghraib were seen as a dark chapter in American military history, prompting extensive debate about the American values, the limits of wartime conduct, and the impact of such actions on the global standing of the United States. The events at Abu Ghraib and their aftermath highlight the importance of transparency, accountability, and a strict adherence to the new rules of law and even during times of war. So you can kind of see a trend going on here, right? We're going to get into this all at the end, but you can kind of see a trend. We start surveilling people. We label them as terrorists, which takes away a shitload of their rights. We start treating those detainees, not prisoners. We call them detainees. Um, We start treating them like shit. We start torturing them a little bit. And you can see how it kind of trickles down to if they're doing it over there, we can do it over here. We can do it worse. We can do it better. It becomes kind of a game at that point of we can just treat other human beings like ass. So you can see how it's all tying together. However, there weren't that there weren't not everyone was on board with it. There were some people that were outspoken, but you also didn't want to be the person that said you didn't support the military or you didn't want to investigate 9-11. So it was very hard for politicians to speak out against this. One politician was John McCain. Quick little intro on John McCain. He was a U.S. senator from Arizona from 1987 to 2018 and the 2000 Republican nominee for president. He was known for many views on different topics, but one where his personal experience lent special weight was the issue of torture. McCain, who was a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War, suffered torture during his imprisonment, was a vocal opponent of what the George W. Bush administration called enhanced interrogation techniques, the EITs we spoke about earlier. And when McCain served as a Navy pilot during Vietnam, he was shot down over North Vietnam, captured and imprisoned. Over the course of five and a half years as a POW, he was regularly tortured. These experiences deeply shaped his views on the issue. McCain firmly believed that torture was not only morally and ethically wrong, but also ineffective for gathering reliable information. He argued that under torture, a person might say anything to make the pain stop, making the information they provide unreliable. He also emphasized that the use of torture damages the reputation of the United States, undermines its moral authority, and can be used as a recruitment tool by America's enemies. Throughout his political career, McCain repeatedly addressed the issues of torture, making clear his opposition to it under any circumstances. One of his most notable speeches was on the Senate floor in November November of 2005 during a debate on the Detainee Treatment Act. McCain said, I have sought to understand the arguments that have been made against applying the standards of contact, our military standards to all who are held in the custody of our government. I understand that well-intentioned people believe that harsh interrogation techniques yielded information that saved American lives. I am eager to review any evidence that supports this claim. He also added, I do respectfully take issue with the argument that the enemy we fight has no respect for human life or rights, and therefore affords us license to suspend our own humanity and morality in the name of security. We are better than terrorists, and we will win, but we will not win because we are cruel. We will not win because we betray what is best in us. We will win because we are stronger, wiser, and better. In the following years, McCain remained consistent on his stance. He criticized the CIA's use of EITs, rejecting the idea that any information obtained could justify their use. Even as late as 2018, during the nomination of Gina Haspel for the director of the CIA, McCain maintained his position stating her refusal to acknowledge torture's immorality is disqualifying. McCain's staunch opposition to torture was influential in the Senate's passion passage of anti-torture amendments and influenced the public discourse on the subject. His personal history and moral stance led credibility and weight to his arguments. While his views on torture were often at odds, 
with other members of his party, McCain's arguments emphasize core American values of human rights and dignity. This emphasis has been influential in shaping discussions on the limits of U.S. policy, even in the face of severe threats to national security. John McCain passed away in 2018, but his unequivocal stance against torture remains a key part of his political legacy. His position continues to impact discussions on U.S. interrogation policy, demonstrating the enduring power of his commitment to human rights and dignity. So not every politician was all for torture. A lot of them weren't in the loop because the CIA kind of hid it from everybody. But people that were on these committees that investigated it were like, "Eh, this doesn't really seem right, kind of goes against our morals. But you also didn't want to be the person that spoke out against the military and were seen as not trying to pursue the terrorists that perpetrated 9-11. So it was a very tricky subject to mean um, to approach, especially as a politician. But being that John McCain has been in the Senate up to that point for about 20 years, he had nothing to lose. And he was a POW. So what he said carried a lot of weight. And a lot of people fell in line because like, hey, this guy that's been a POW, he's been in the Senate forever. He has our back on this one. So we could speak up a lot more, which highlighted a lot of facts. However, there was some shady shit going on still. All these things, again, adding up. It's like, you can't just stop all of it. And if you're classifying it and you're redacting a lot of it in these reports, how do you get this information out, right? In walks Edward Snowden. I think everyone knows his name. He's had movies made about him, documentaries, books. He's been interviewed. Edward Snowden, if you guys don't know who he is, is a former CIA employee and national security and contractor who in 2013 leaked highly classified documents about global surveillance programs run by the NSA and its Five Eyes Alliance, sparking a massive debate over privacy, technology, and national security. We're not going to go in too far about his growing up and his life before the NSA. It's not really too important other than he was super smart. He dropped out of college and he was really good with computers, coding, and he just had a His brain operated the same way a computer operates. So he got noticed by the NSA and the CIA and got hired in 2006 as a systems engineer working IT security for the CIA. His skills and potential were quickly recognized and he was given increasing responsibilities and assignments overseas. In 2009, he left the CIA and began working for private contractors, including Dell and Booz Allen Hamilton, where he continued working on assignments for the NSA. But what led him to disclosing this information and leaking classified information to the public? So Snowden has stated that his decision to leak classified information stemmed from his growing disillusionment with the U.S. government's surveillance activities, which he believed were infringing upon American citizens' private rights. He was particularly troubled by the NSA's domestic surveillance operations, which he believed operated with little oversight and could be used to exert control over individuals' personal lives. According to interviews, he began questioning the U.S. government's surveillance operations as early as 2006, but was especially alarmed after renewal of the Patriot Act in 2011. See, it all goes back to the Patriot Act. And the expansion of the programs that collected data on American citizens. He started copying sensitive documents from the NSA while working for Dell in 2012 and continued this practice after moving to Booz Allen Hamilton in 2013. How did he he leak this information, though? Snowden reached out to journalists Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras in late 2012 and early 2013 with their help 
and later assistance from The Guardian and The Washington Post, Snowden revealed extensive information about the global surveillance programs, many run by the NSA and the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, with cooperation from telecommunication companies and European governments. In May 2013, Snowden took medical leave from his position at Booz Allen Hamilton and flew to Hong Kong, where he met Glenn Greenwald, Poitras, and The Guardian's Ewan McCaskill. Over the following days, the first of the documents were published, revealing a vast network of global surveillance, including PRISM, a program used by the NSA to access the servers of major internet companies, and Tempora, a British black ops surveillance program run by the NSA's British partner, the GCHQ. Now, this has been debated multiple times on if he's a hero or a traitor, but public opinion about Snowden is often highly polarizing. Some see him as a hero and a whistleblower for exposing what they believe as illegal activity, the government overreach, and significant violation of privacy rights. These supporters argue that the public had the right to know about the scope of the government's surveillance activities. Others view Snowden as a traitor who compromised national security. Critics, including many in the U.S. government, argue that Snowden's leaks harm the ability of the United States and its allies to fight terrorism, and it put lives at risk. They argue that there were other, less harmful ways for him to express his concerns, and that by fleeing to Russia, a nation known for support, a nation not known for supporting freedom of speech and or government transparency, he undermined his claims of acting in the public interest. So after leaking the documents, Snowden intended to seek asylum in a country that could resist U.S. pressure, like Iceland. However, he ended up trapped in Russia when the U.S. canceled his passport, leaving him unable to travel. He has remained in Russia since 2013 after being granted temporary asylum and then a residence permit. As of today, Snowden is still residing in Russia. He continues to speak out about privacy issues, surveillance, and civil liberties, often through virtual talks and interviews. Snowden has expressed the desire to, to return to the U.S., but he faces charges under the Espionage Act, which I think was only used twice in American history, that could lead to years in prison. While some have called for the pardon of Snowden, this remains a controversial and politically charged issue. So you can see, after, what, 12 years of the Patriot Act, there were people that were saying, hey, this seems kind of fucked up. We should change some of this stuff. And Edward Snowden decided to take it on upon himself to leak the information to journalists and get it out there. Similar to WikiLeaks, if you know, if you heard of WikiLeaks, but WikiLeaks did it the wrong way. They just dumped all the information on the internet. Snowden went to journalists and said, can you make this not kill people that are spies and stuff like redact some of the stuff that's not important, but get the story out there the right way. So whenever you hear Snowden, you're probably going to hear WikiLeaks associated with them, but they're not the same. They did similar things, but a little different. But we're going to move on to the Senate Intelligence Committee report on torture. Now, this one is the, after all this stuff going on, and with the torture, the surveillance and all this stuff, uh, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee was developing this report. Is all this stuff worth it? Is it legal? Does it work? All this stuff. So the Senate Intelligence Committee report on torture, often referred to as the Committee Study of the Central Intelligence Agency's Detention Interrogation Program, is a profound investigative work revealing the brutal interrogation techniques used by the Central Intelligence Agency on detainees from 2001 to 2006. The report, often named after the lead investigator Daniel Jones, is a comprehensive critique of the agency's EIT program. Daniel Jones, a Senate staffer, was assigned to investigate the CIA's detention and interrogation program by Senator Dianne Feinstein, the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI. Over five years, Jones led a small team of investigators in reviewing over six million pages of top-secret CIA documents. 
The team faced significant hurdles in the process. Initially, the CIA provided limited and heavily redacted documents. As the, investi- as the investigation progressed, the relationship between the Senate investigators and the CIA became increasingly adversarial. The CIA accused, of, accused the Senate staffers of improperly accessing certain classified documents, while the Senate accused the CIA of spying on their own investigators, creating a significant breach of the constitutional separation of powers. The investigation culminated in a 6700 page report, which was approved by the SSCI in December of 2012. However, only 525-page executive summary has been declassified and publicly released, albeit with significant redactions. The full report remains classified. What was in this report, right? What was in this report, you say? So the key findings were the CIA's enhanced interrogation techniques were not effective. The EITs were full of shit. The CIA provided extensive inaccurate information about the operation of the program and its effectiveness to policymakers and the public. The CIA's mismanagement... forgive me, the CIA's management of the program was inadequate and deeply flawed. The CIA was far more brutal than the CIA represented to policymakers and the American public. So basically, what the report identified was EITs didn't work, very ineffective. The CIA was taking the information that they already had and were using from sources outside of the EIT program and tying it to the EIT program and telling Senate, here's it here, it's working. However, everyone that was in the EIT program was like, we didn't get that information from torture. We got that from somebody else, not in this program. And then the management of it was deeply flawed. Everyone blaming each other and no one taking accountability for anything. And they misrepresented a lot of the information to the policymakers and the American public on what goes on with these programs. So the public release of the port's executive summary in December 2014 led to shock and controversy. Some held the report as a necessary public reckoning with the excesses of the post-9-11 era, whilst others condemned it as a partisan attack on the intelligence community. Jones was not seen as a traitor, but his work was indeed controversial. To some, he was a patriot who brought the government's overreach and wrongdoings to light. To others, particularly those within the intelligence community, he was seen as a person who undermined the work of the CIA and potentially put national security at risk. Many in the government, especially those connected to the intelligence community, did not want the report released because they feared it would harm the reputation of the CIA, compromise national security, and risk the lives of U.S. personnel overseas. The Obama administration was also concerned that the report's release could inflame anti-American sentiment around the world. Furthermore, the report was politically contentious. While Democrats controlled the Senate Intelligence Committee at the time of the investigation, the Republicans on the committee disagreed with the report's findings and methods and released their own minority report. And where does this leave us with the report? What's, What's the legacy of this report, right? Daniel Jones left the Senate after the completion of the report and founded Advanced Democracy, Inc., a nonprofit organization promoting accountability, transparency, and good governance. He remains an advocate for transparency and accountability in the government. The report itself left a lasting legacy. It stands as one of the most comprehensive and critical assessments of the U.S. counterterrorism efforts during the early years of the war on terror. While the full report remains classified, the declassified summary continues to spark debates on the nature of national security, the balance of power within the United States government, the use of torture, and the need for transparency and and accountability in intelligence work. So in conclusion, you could see how 9-11 happens and slowly over the course of 15 to 20 years or so, slowly but surely, there's things going on that are just chipping away at civil liberties, chipping away at the Fourth Amendment. We're using torture as a method to get information, which we've never 
ever were supposed to do or never believed in. We're spying on all our citizens that have no connection to terrorism, or maybe they have a relative of a relative of a friend who might be a terrorist. So now they have to watch everybody. And it's this long spent expanding network spider web of people and programs and techniques used where you get six, seven layers deep on a person. They're connected to almost everybody in the country. So it in effect, you're spying on everybody. And then in the end, a report comes out saying, hey, man, a bunch of this stuff was full of shit. Like, a bunch of this stuff didn't work. Now, I'm not saying it didn't work completely or it didn't work totally, but for the amount of money and time and effort and all this stuff we put into it, the return on investment doesn't seem like it adds up to, hey, we just trampled all over people's personal liberties and we stopped maybe, I don't know, the potential of one or two terrorism attacks. So depends on where you go on, where you side on some of these um, issues, but you could see over that entire time frame how panic and emotion and being scared can lead people to do crazy things that they would never normally do in a normal scenario. So mass surveillance and torture, while proposed as necessary measures for national security, fundamentally contradict the principles of freedom, dignity, and the respect for human rights upon which democratic societies are built. They violate both domestic and international law, degrade our shared humanity, and may actually harm the pursuit of security more than they aid it. The Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution asserts the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Mass surveillance, by monitoring the private communications of citizens without suspicion of wrongdoing, clearly infringes upon this right. Edward Snowden, the NSA whistleblower, once said, I do not want to live in a world where everything I do and say is recorded. That is not something I am willing to support or live under. His sentiment echoes the thoughts of many who believe that such omnipresent scrutiny stifles free expression and individual liberty. Furthermore, mass surveillance creates power dynamic that can easily be, easily be abused. In the words of former U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only, sh- the only sure bulwark of continuing liberty is a government strong enough to protect the interests of the people and a people strong enough and well-informed enough to maintain its sovereign control over the government. When the state has disproportionate knowledge about its citizens, it can easily suppress dissent and control narratives. The use of torture is a gross violation of human rights and international laws established by the United Nations, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the Geneva Conventions. It is also prohibited under U.S. law by the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States, succinctly captured the ethical argument against torture, stating, it is better a hundred guilty persons should escape than one innocent person should suffer. Moreover, torture has proven to be an ineffective method of gathering reliable intelligence. According to Senator John McCain, a former prisoner of war, torturers often knew more about what was going on in our minds than we did. They did not learn critical life-saving information. They learned how much pain a human being can endure. The information gleaned from torture is often unreliable because individuals under extreme pain are likely to say anything to make it stop. In conclusion, while national security is undoubtedly important. The use of mass surveillance and torture pose serious threats to civil liberties and human rights, undermine the democratic principles upon which our society is built, and can result in more harm than good. As the great legal philosopher Cesar Becharia once said, every act of authority of one over... Let me start that again. Every act of authority of one man over another 
for which there is not an absolute necessity, is tyrannical. We must question whether such extreme measures are truly necessary and not simply accept them out of fear of or false sense of security. So there you have it. You can't have freedom while being watched. It just doesn't, it's not in the same equations, apples and oranges. If you're always being watched, that's not a free country. If you voluntarily want to be watched, like most companies do to you or do to us, when you check that little box on the service agreement that says they can record, they can monitor, when you buy in Alexa or any kind of home product that you speak to, you're signing away the right to privacy to that company. But that company can't go ahead and sell that information to the government. At least they shouldn't. However, that's also in a lot of the writing that you sign. So if you're one of these privacy people and you understand the importance of privacy, take a look around the room right now and just look at all the devices that you're using. If you have a webcam, if you have a phone, a watch, anything that's connected to the internet is can be used as a microphone or any kind of data gathering apparatus that can be used by the company. The company can be either knowingly give that information to the government or the government's already in bed with them, kind of how Verizon is. If you want a private, if there are companies that pride themselves in being private to their customers, Apple being one of them, Apple's very big on privacy. Um, they had a big case a few years ago where they, the person, I think it was murder, some shit happened, and the government was trying to get Apple to unlock the phone. Apple's like, we can't. First of all, we can't do it if we tried. And even if we could, we're not going to do it anyway. And the government got pissed off. It was a whole back and forth, but Apple stood their ground. Like, we can't do that. Like, that's that's against what we believe in as a company, and the, it's designed that way. So we can't go through someone's phone without them knowing about it. And I'm sure there's been backdoors and programs and stuff that have went around this, but um, just make sure your shit is secure. If you want it secure, then it's secure. If you're one of these people that don't give a shit, then go ahead and don't give a shit. But you can't say being watched is just limited freedom. There's no such thing as limited freedom. It doesn't make any sense. It just, it just goes against the word. It, it's polar opposites, limited freedom. Either you're free or not. And I agree with some of this stuff. I agree you shouldn't be watched. Does it help? I don't think so. Watching literally everybody, I don't believe it helps that much. So if you're for it, if you're for it, if you're not, you're not. It is what it is. But now you know that we did torture people. We got away with it for a while. And we had people that stood up to it and said, no, this isn't going to fly. And here's why. So um, that's going to wrap up this episode. Hopefully you guys learned a little bit more about the torture programs, the master valence, and the problem with acting in emotion after a huge event like 9-11 and then just being like, hey, yep, we're watching everybody now. Everyone's a, everyone's a suspect. Watch everybody. If they have a hint of terrorism on them, put them in jail, lock them up, chain them to a wall, smash their head in, drown them a little bit until they give it up. And that's what we did as a country. Not proud of it, but got to do what you got to do. So that's going to go ahead and wrap this up. We're going to head out of here. Hopefully you guys learned a little bit something. Any comments, concerns, feel free to write, write it on Twitter, Facebook, Threads, which is out now, um, TikTok, text me to fuck off, call me unpatriotic. It's fine. It, it is what it is. So, and um, yeah, we'll see you guys back out there.